And please uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8, page 944. If you would like to use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, I would encourage you to do that if you don't have uh, your own Bible with you. And uh, we continue now. We're in our fifth sermon, about a third of the way through uh, this series of what has been known as, or called the the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And this morning we're um, looking specifically at verses 9 through 11, Uh, but we're going to begin reading back at verse 1 to give us uh, the context. Um, I was thinking that it would be a good thing for us every week to start back at verse 1 and read up to where we are at. Um, help us also memorize this chapter as we go along. And then I thought, oh, they won't like it if I do that. So I didn't do it last week. And I got an email from somebody saying, would it be okay if we started reading a chapter, uh, verse 1 each week? So if you're upset, it's not my fault now. Somebody out here asked for it. Um, But it would be a good way to make sure that the Word of God dwells richly, the Word of Christ dwells richly in our hearts if we keep coming back to the... um, the feast that is the word of God in Romans 8. So beginning in verse 1, again, our consideration is primarily uh, verses 9 uh, through 11. And we're going to sneak in a little bit of verse 8 too. This is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. Well, if your heart kept a guest book, Who would it reveal has been staying, has been visiting? Who would it reveal you have been entertaining in your heart? There really are only two options. The heart is a home that can either entertain Satan and sin, 
or the Spirit of God. And you'll notice that in the verses that we're looking at, primarily 9 through 11, uh, Paul is, is particularly concerned to say uh, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. He says it three times uh, directly or um, explicitly, and then one time indirectly when he speaks of the Son of God dwelling in us, uh, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, but of course the only way Christ is in us is by virtue of the Spirit. So in these three verses, four times he makes reference to the Spirit being in believers. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? That's the question today, and it matters tremendously, and it matters for at least three, these uh, three reasons that we'll consider this morning. The first is this. It is those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them and those only who also have the smile of God. If you have the Spirit of God, you have the smile of God. We learn that from the inverse that is stated in um, verse 9 and then by inference in verse uh, 10. I'm sorry, verse, um, the inverse stated in verse 8 and then by inference in verse 10. So verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So if the spirit of God does not dwell in you, you cannot please God. And then he says, but you're not in the flesh. You have the spirit. So what's the implication? You can please God. You have the smile of God upon you. And so we consider, though, first what it means not to have the spirit, not to have the smile of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we are met with the twin doctrines of total depravity and total inability in verse 8 there. Um, the former total depravity made famous by the, the acronym TULIP. That's what the T stands for. And I say they're twin doctrines because they're really teaching something identical. They are teaching about the inescapably pervasive nature of sin. That it affects every aspect of, of who we are. Uh, total depravity even shows up in verse 7, right? When Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. To, to be in the flesh is to be in a depraved or a sinful state, that this is what defines a person who is outside of Christ. And so we say that they are totally depraved. Now, that, that term could, could be a little confusing. It does not mean that um, uh, those outside of Christ are as sinful as sin can be, they, they are, it, it, we're not saying that every unregenerate person will indulge in every form of sin. Uh, we're not saying that, that they could never do anything that's good for society. We're not saying anything like that. Um, we're talking about the corruption of our whole nature, our total nature. That's the shorter catechism. Total depravity refers to the corruption of our whole nature. One theologian said it's a term of 
uh, extensity, not intensity. It extends to every part of us. It's not necessarily that our sin is as intense as it could be, and thank God for that. I've used this illustration before. I'm not sure here or, or not, but I've said that my, my golf game, I think, is a pretty good example of the doctrine of total depravity. Um, I enjoy uh, hitting the links with a friend uh, every now and then, but I am by no means a true golfer. Uh, uh, every once in a while, I'll hit a decent shot, but there is not a single aspect of, of that game where my incompetence does not shine through at some point or another, right? From, from uh, driving, the short game putting, even the rules I don't fully understand, much less the etiquette. I get in trouble a lot by other players or people that work at the golf course when I try to go golfing and they say you can't stand there and you can't stand there with those shoes on and really could you just leave actually it'd just be better if you just left so am I the worst golfer in the world no no of course not but when I pick up a club and take a swing there is a totality to my ineptitude right that's that's the idea of total depravity now the result or the consequence of total depravity is this other doctrine, total inability. And that means that a sinner is so spiritually bankrupt that he can do nothing pertaining to his salvation. In short, the unregenerate man is dead in sin, Paul says in Ephesians 2. His will is enslaved to his evil nature. Louis Burkhoff, uh, the Dutch theologian back in the days at Calvin, said that by total inability, we understand that the sinner, quote, cannot change his fundamental preference for sin and for self and change it to a love for God, nor ever even make an approach to such a change. So that that means that the natural man is totally incapable of doing the thing that we as humans need to do more than anything else, and that is please God. Uh, this is what we were made for. God made us for his glory, for, for, for his enjoyment. We were made to make God smile. And to see the smile of God is life itself. The psalmist says, Psalm 31, Make your face shine on your servant and save me in your steadfast love. For God to, to shine, uh, for his face to shine, for him to, to lift up his countenance upon his people is to give them life. If you don't have the smile of God, you don't have Life And the natural man cannot make God smile. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul states that so matter-of-factly in verse 8, because it is a matter of fact. And yet countless men and women and boys and girls every day still try to please God through things that they do although they remain in the flesh. They're convinced that they can do something to make him happy, something to earn a place in his good graces, something to earn God's favor. Why is that? Why do, why do people in the flesh keep trying to please God, even though Paul says it's an impossibility? Well, perhaps we have too low a view of God. Have you ever wondered if that's the case? That we think of him on human terms... And we know that as humans, we are often susceptible to the influence or the persuasion of others. So if we can influence and persuade other people to do all we want, maybe we can influence and persuade God to do what 
we want. Our children are enjoying a book that we got out of the library right now that's called Don't Make Me Laugh. Um, the narrator, Mr. Frim Dimpney, announces at the start, I'm in charge of this book, and then he lays down the rules. He says, do not laugh, do not smile, and if you do, you have to go back to the beginning of the book. We don't like the book as much as our kids. <laughs> you can imagine how often we have to restart that thing. But, of course, that's the whole point, isn't it, right? In trying not to laugh, laughing suddenly becomes all the more enjoyable. Maybe you play that sort of game with, with uh, your kids or with your siblings, right? A, a do not smile game or a do not laugh contest. Why, is, why are those so much fun? Because we know going into the contest that we do have the power to make that other person laugh, that, that we can make silly faces or, or we can say funny jokes or if the rules of the contest allow, we can maybe tickle them in the right spot. And I think maybe we think of God in that same regard. We think that, that he must have a soft spot, that there's some way somehow that we can make him smile. And I don't say this in any sort of disrespectful sense. I just want to try to capture it for you when I say it like this. God is not ticklish. He's not ticklish. We can't tickle his fancies. We can't please him by doing things, even very good things, even very religious things. You know, God tells us that in the Bible. Malachi chapter 1 is a good place if you want to turn there, where he rebukes the people for essentially trying to tickle him. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, we see God rebuking people for trying to do something that they think would elicit a pleasurable response. A pleasant emotional response. This is what God says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that, that he may be gracious to us. Well, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire in my, on my altar in vain. He's saying, I, I wish that church could be closed because I'm getting tired of you. And then he says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Uh, the author of Hebrews sums it up well when he says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So even religious exercises, when they're offered up by the unconverted, those who are in the flesh, they meet with God's displeasure. It's not just that he isn't pleased, but he's actually enraged. Isaiah chapter 1 says something similar. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, and you talking about religious exercises, he says, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Well, the commentator Robert Haldane writes that an action may be materially good in itself, but unless it proceed from a right motive, which is the love of God, and be directed towards a right end, which is the glory of God, it cannot be acknowledged by God. Because before a man's services can be acceptable, the person must be acceptable. 
The man himself must be acceptable. And if you're in the flesh, you're not acceptable to God. It doesn't matter how smart someone is, how bright they are, how kind they are, how charitable they are, how philanthropic, how courteous, how outwardly religious. From God's perspective, who looks upon the heart, the most that can be said of such a person is that they are still in the flesh and therefore they're to be condemned. How could it be any other way for the unbeliever? As one theologian said, how can he please God whose whole existence is a denial of God? But then the tone changes, and Paul announces some tremendously good news in verse 9. Those in the flesh cannot please God, but then he says, you, however, the you is emphatic, you are not in the flesh. He changes things here. Uh, he, he has now abandoned sort of generic principles about humanity, and he's applying the message to the church in Rome specifically. He says, you Roman Christians, on the other hand, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. He's saying, I don't want you to be afraid or, or, or to fear the wrath of God, dear friends. I don't want you to think that you can't please God or that you don't have the smile of God shining down upon you. And friends, I want to give you that same, that same reassurance today. Dear Christian, you, however, have the Spirit. You, however, can please God. You can make God smile. Why? Because you have the Spirit But we want to say more than that because we ask, how does it follow? How does it follow that that being in the Spirit or the Spirit being in us? You'll notice in verse 9, Paul says it both ways, which is just really to solidify the relationship between us and the Spirit. He's in us. We are in him. How does being in the Spirit, though, make it so that God's pleased with us or that we can have God smile? Well, it's the second thing we want to consider. We've learned that if you have the the Spirit of God, you have the smile of God, but that's because to have the Spirit of God means you have the Son of God, and the Son of God is the only one for whom God has ever said, Behold, look at that person, with him I am well pleased. When you have the Spirit of God, you have the Son of God, and the Son of God, and having him, is what makes God smile, because when God looks on us, He does not see us in our sin, which elicits his displeasure. He looks on us and he sees us in his son, which makes him smile. Now, perhaps we should pause for just a moment and ask, why is it that Christ, the Son of God, is so pleasing to the Father? I want to give you two brief answers to that. The first answer is because of who he is. Who he is. Because in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Because Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1, 3. In other words, when God looks upon Jesus, when he looks upon his son, he sees a perfect reflection of his own glory. And that pleases him. Now, John Piper interestingly points out that that could sound like vanity. God looks on his son and he sees himself, and so he's happy. Is that vanity? Well, no, because if God was not pleased with the supremacy of his glory as revealed in his son, then that would mean he doesn't live up to the standard with which he calls us to. We are to be fully pleased 
with the glory that's revealed in the sun. Piper writes this, God must love and delight in his own beauty and perfection above all things. For us to do that in front of the mirror would be the essence of vanity, but for God to do it in front of his son is the essence of righteousness. So God is pleased with the son because of who he is, but secondly, because of what he came to do, because of the work of redemption, because of salvation, because uh, of the law that he maintained, the sin that he bore, the, the death he died. God says of Christ in Matthew twelve eighteen, quoting from Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. Why does his soul delight in him? Because he's the servant that God has appointed, the servant who has accomplished the work of salvation. Uh, we cannot please God in and of ourselves, but Christ can and Christ does. And what this section of Romans 8 is teaching us is that one of the jobs of the, the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to take Christ, the pleasing son, and give him to us and unite us to him. To bring him with all of his perfection into our very hearts. Notice how seamlessly Paul goes from saying that the spirit is in us in verse 9 to saying that Christ himself is in us in verse 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, that's verse 9 and verse 10. But if Christ is in you, that's, that's verse 10, the opening of verse 10. And that's because to have the spirit is to have Christ. We're united to him and, and he in us. And that makes all the difference. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, makes this famous remark in his institutes. He says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he suffered and done for us for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. As long as Christ remains outside of us, everything that he did, did is useless, of no value. We need him in us. We need to be in him. You know, uh, I was thinking that uh, windows can be a real blessing. You know, when I'm in an airplane flying at 30,000 feet, looking out in the beautiful uh, sunset up in the clouds... I'm really grateful for the windows separating me from the sunset in the clouds. Uh, likewise, when you go to the zoo, you know, what makes the zoo enjoyable is knowing that there's a really um, thick pane of glass between you and the lion. Well, there are other times when windows seem to be a curse, and they only highlight what we're missing out on. Maybe, you know, you think of the, the student in school, maybe right around this time of year, who's enduring the the lecture from their teacher as they ponder out into the, uh, looking out the, the window and they see the younger classes um, running around in recess, enjoying the, the nice weather. Uh, the window just emphasizes what they're missing out on. Or the, the little girl walking down Main Street with her, uh, with her mother and tugs at her, her mother's uh, arm and says, how much is that doggy in the window? Right? The, the window is, is the separation between me and the thing that I want. We, we have to ask, is that, is that what the gospel is like? There's Christ and all of his perfection, all of his, uh, all of his sufficiency, all that he did to redeem us. It, are we separated from him? Or is it just something we look out upon? 
We look into, but we don't ever actually experience ourselves. No. No, because of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is not a story we read about. It's a story we are part of. The Holy Spirit removes that partition that would separate us from Christ. And he he takes Christ from being a mere intellectual proposition or historical figure, and he becomes truly ours. Everything that he did is ours. The Spirit takes all that is in Christ, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, and all that Christ did, his obedience, his service, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he gives it to us. Without Christ in us, we cannot please God. And without the Spirit, we cannot have Christ. And so, what are we learning? When we have the Spirit, we have the Son of God. And when we have the Son of God, we have the smile of God. There's something else, though, thirdly and finally, we receive from the Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, we learn in this passage, you not only have the smile of God because you have the Son of God, but because you have the Son of God, you also have the saving power of God. The saving power of God. That's the final thing. That you need the Spirit if you want to have God's power. And Paul describes this saving power in a twofold manner. Or perhaps it, we could say it better if we said that he describes a twofold benefit of God's saving power in us. One benefit's in the here and now, one benefit is yet to come. The immediate benefit we read of in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, the word rendered body there is not the same word that we have encountered already, which has been translated flesh. While flesh, we said, if you remember from last sermon or two weeks ago, we said that refers to uh, the sinful nature of man Body here, the Greek word soma, like psychosomatic, something that uh, is happening in your mind, but you feel its effects in your body. That's the word here. It's really referring to the physical person. And Paul says the human body, what we all have, what's, what's sitting in the pews in front of me, what's standing up here in front of you, that body is dead because of sin. It's in a state of death and, and decay. We're marked by death as soon as we enter the world. Paul said as much in Romans 5, if you flip back, verse 12, he says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sin. The body is dead because of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He says, the moment we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. The first breath you take is one of your lasts. The first breath you take is one of your last. He says, Such is the position of man as the result of the fall. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. As the result of the fall, the body of man is in a state of humiliation, weakness, and death. The body gives sin its chance and its opportunity. He says the body we could consider like dead weight. And a man's body constitutes his greatest problem in this world. Now, while that's true on the one hand, for the Christian, there is this blessed 
But on the other hand, on the one hand, though the body is dead because of sin, on the other hand, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We deal with the deadly effects of sin still, but we're not dead. The Holy Spirit has brought life to us because of righteousness. Death comes through sin. Life comes through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he merited for us and gave to us as a gracious gift in the gospel. If we we quote Paul again from Romans chapter 5, this is what he says. For if because of one man's trespass, this is verse 17, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We are justified and therefore we have a principle of life at work in us. We're not marked by death anymore. Some scholars think that Paul maybe has Ezekiel in the back of his mind as he writes this, where Ezekiel prophesied in, in chapter 36 of the book with his name that one day God would send a new spirit. He would give his spirit into the hearts of his people. For what reason? I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so... We, we live in that reality now. That prophecy has been fulfilled. We have the Spirit of God, and so now we're not enslaved to death. We actually do that which leads to life. We can obey God's law. We can please Him because the Spirit enables us to do that. Sanctification is a benefit of salvation. So that's the, the right here, right now benefit of having the saving power of God. There's reformation in our hearts. We're changed. But then there's another benefit that's still to come. Not just reformation right now, but resurrection still to come. Do you see that in verse 11? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, There's a Trinitarian reference here, by the way. Paul tells us that it's God the Father who raised the Son out of the tomb by the working of the Holy Spirit, right? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, who is the him that raised Jesus from the dead? The Father. So the spirit of the Father that raised the Son is in you. If we've been considering the total inability of fallen man, now Paul moves to revel in the total ability of our triune God. This God is totally able to take dead bones and to bring them to life. We can't do a thing. He can do it all. And he will do it all for those who believe. Again, if Ezekiel is in the background, then we just move to chapter 37. 36 talks about a spirit in our hearts which makes us obey. Chapter 37 is that great vision where uh, Ezekiel sees the spirit making us physically alive. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause the Spirit to enter you, and you will live. We are dead. We are totally incapable. But God is totally, radically, completely, entirely able to give us life. Life in the here and now. 
moral life through sanctification, but then life soon to come, immortal life through the resurrection. Do you believe it? Do you, do you see it here? Or do you doubt? Do you find yourself crying out with Paul in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You're still there. The body is dead because of sin, and you're, you're stuck there, and you're thinking, yeah, who can save me from this? Well, Romans 8, 11 is the answer. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. If he dwells in you, remember that's the thing Paul has said three times. If in fact he's in you, if he's in you, if he's in you, here's one of the consequences. The saving power of God. If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then you can be assured you too will be raised just like Jesus. The same power that took the son of God out of the tomb will bring you and I out of the grave as well on the last day. Do you believe it? If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you have to believe in your resurrection too. It's a very simple syllogism that Paul's giving us. If A, then B. If you have this spirit, the one that raised Jesus, then you will be raised too. It's what he does. It's a wonderful thing. And so the question to us remains... Do you have the Spirit? Without the Spirit, there's no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation, no righteousness, no resurrection. I wonder if you found it interesting the way Paul framed this question or his, his um, rhetoric here, how he puts it like this to the Romans when he says, if, this is verse 9, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, And he he comes back to that a couple times. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. But interestingly, I don't think Paul is questioning that the spirit of God is in the people at Rome. That was that whole uh, distinction that we saw between verse 8 and verse 9, right? Those in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh. He seems to be convinced. The people are in the spirit, and yet he still chooses to word it this way. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. I think Paul, though assuming the Romans have the spirit, frames the statement this way to invite them into some self-examination. As though he is desiring that they would come to the same conclusion that he has come to. And you ought to do the same. You ought to ask yourself, do I have the Spirit? And Christian, Christian, when you ask yourself that question, and when you truly examine your life, you'll see the proof of the Spirit at work. You'll see that that the Spirit causes you to delight in glorifying God, causes you to, to be able to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness, to die to yourself, to, to live in obedience to His law of love. And if the Spirit of God is doing that work in you right now, then you can be fully assured there is a greater work to come. He will raise your body from the dust. You know what Paul wants us to leave this passage saying? He wants us to have the confidence to say, Jesus lives, and so shall I. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the confidence that it instills. We do ask that 
the spirit uh, of whom we have discussed greatly uh, this morning would apply these truths into our hearts that we would believe them and not doubt. And in believing, we would live uh, those lives that you desire us to live, dying to sin and living unto righteousness. Because, yes, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit brings life because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you for the finished work of Christ on the cross and that that work can be applied to us now through union with that Savior. We ask that you would be uh, now, at, by your Holy Spirit, the after-preacher, applying all these truths to our hearts throughout this week, and that you would continue to transform us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.